Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lishenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host Mike Swaridge and joining us this week, every week, are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney and T.Q. This is episode 20 where we'll be discussing line 60 on the Shieldhauer, the squinter or the cockeyed strike. What have you been up to in the last week, Johanna? Oh, yeah, I fenced again. I didn't do any sparring, though. Uh, just some fun thrusting and cutting drills. The Norwegian fencer, Marius Rafusai, and I hope I didn't butcher his name there, uh, moved to Austria some months ago, and he's slowly building up a club around here. I visited him like a few days ago, and we spent a whole day in the park training his new people, and they're so motivated and super nice. And I think we'll be having a new awesome club here in Austria quite soon. And, oh yeah, if you're ever around northern Italy or Austria or southern Germany, um, you're probably more than welcome to drop by. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Michael Chillister, what have you been up to? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the facsimile project is wrapping up less than a week left. So I've been, I also received a massive shipment of books from the first facsimile that I've been boxing up and shipping out all week. I also recorded a video cast with Jess Finley and Kat Anderson and a podcast with Guy Windsor. So I've been talking to people a lot this week, which is super weird. In these I, I saw the the video cast that was sort of about translation and the facsimile, wasn't it? Yeah, they're they're the video cast. They're calling it Two Sword Nerds, and Guy Windsor's podcast is called The Sword Guy. Get it? Because his name is Guy. Hey. And yeah, and yeah. So the podcast I think won't be out for a while since he has a whole bunch already recorded. But the video cast is currently available on Vimeo. Other than that, I don't know, usual stuff. I've been downloading the super high-res pictures of Le Kuchner, each of which takes like five minutes for a future nice. facsimile project, maybe, which is nice and tedious. Cool. Uh, Steve, what have you been up to? I got some motivation to work on my translation of Nikolaus again. So what I'm trying to do with the translation, there's two there's two main, you know, extensive versions of it. The Cal version and the Rast version. And I'm translating both of them and trying to see like where they're different and where they're similar and all that stuff. And the reason I got motivated to do that was because there's a line from Rast about in the Mutirin about uh, lowering your hands at the end. And it seems like in Lev, like it says, move your hands at the end. So it seems like the lowering thing is kind of missing from there. So I was uh, thinking about that, and then I did all the other stuff. And I also discovered that there is a passage from Lev that I left out of the translation in my book. And so I apologize to everybody who bought it. I'm we all want our money back. But not today. <laughs> Wait, so Steve, if you include the Nikolaus, are you going to include both translations or just the one that has the different parts? Just I'm 
Yeah, I'll create a concoction where it's the, the most different one in each case. <laughs> yeah, well, there'll be two one that's the most different and one that's the most similar. No, but my plan is like, I'm going to translate both of them and then I'm going to like combine both of them and have like one huge version that has a ton of like footnotes and stuff. Um, oh, so it won't be RDLKR. No, it won't be. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it should be. It's it's mostly the same though. Well, I mean, Rast likes to like drop words that aren't necessary. It seems like, and and sometimes full sentences. Yeah, sometimes full sentences. And he also like sometimes like if there's a difference between the two versions, Cal tends to take uh, Donzig's side, and Rast tends to take. Uh, website, so I like Ross better, of course. But <laughs> yeah, so we'll see. We'll see where it goes from there. But that's it. Cool. T, what have you been up to in the last week? Uh, well, we finally reopened my uh, my fencing club, uh, so I went and actually played with swords for the first time in who even knows how long, which was fun. Uh, turns out I forgot how to fence. Uh, so that'll take some time to remember again. Uh, but it did mean I got an opportunity to actually use the super light foils I had built. Uh, so very lightweight, very uh, flexible longsword fetters. Um, and we did some light sparring with them. Uh, they are promising so far. I want to use them for a few months to get a sense about durability, but they should have some some good applications, I hope, for like technical training and uh, kind of individual lesson type uh, activities where you want to be able to deliver and take a lot of hits or take a lot of thrusts without getting bruised or concussed. Cool. And the, the little bit of feedback I saw from the training partners seemed pretty positive. Yeah, they're pretty, uh, they're really fun to play with because they're just really light and fast and like totally safe, but you can go really quick with them, uh, which is a nice for people who don't play Olympic fencing or something. It's a game that they're a thing that they're not necessarily used to and really fun to do. How, so, do you feel that it introduces uh, a lot of artifacts into your fencing? I mean, once upon a time, you were the sharp sword swinging guy in the UK. I still have the sharp Long sword. Sword at least. <laughs> um, the... Or have you been seduced by the, the dark side of sports fencing? Yeah, the next version is going to have electric, uh, electric wires too. Um, so they've got potential issues, but most of the time, especially for the sort of thing I want to use them for, like issues like okay you can cut with these with just your fingers or whatever can primarily be addressed by having the person acting as the coach in the exercise make sure you're doing things in a way that scales to a heavier a real sword you know a heavier fetter or a real sword or whatever you care about actually using so if you're trying to use them with a um if you treat them just as a an item to use as an end in itself you can get weird artifacts but if you're coach reminds you to make sure that you're actually engaging your body behind your cuts or something, then I don't think there'll be any particular issue with that. Cool. What have I been up to in the last week? I was helping to organize a fencing competition for about a month's time. That got cancelled because uh, we're in the middle of a second wave of COVID. And I caught up on some sleep, so that's about it. Doesn't your second wave of COVID mean 20 people have it or something? Yeah, uh, I think 30-odd when I looked last <laughs> night. 
Okay, just to make sure everyone from outside the, <laughs> your country is aware of what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of content. Um, but I think we've got uh, a dozen or so cases in hospital now. It's, it's definitely on the up. All right. I think anyway. my tiny city has a higher COVID rate than that, than your whole country. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is this is not the, the Corona podcast. It's the Swords podcast. So... Yeah, Hannah, could you give us the, the next couplet in the original? Schill kürzte dich an, durchwechselt gesiegt ihm an. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us the Harry's translation? Schill those short before you, defeat them, change through. Thank you very much. Um, so, Harry sticks with Schill here, doesn't he? Because he uses the original German for the name of the Mastercut. Mastercut? Mastercut. <laughs> <laughs> did it. I said the thing. <laughs> um, for the hidden hues. Um, well, he doesn't actually use the original German. He uses a vaguely modernized version of it, which is a rant I may not even go into right now. But... <laughs> the word S C H I E L doesn't appear in any fencing manual as far as I know. Okay, it's Schill. It's it? in Rast, I think. Is it? Damn, fucking Rast. <laughs> Regardless, no one reads Rast, so he doesn't count. True. True. All right. I'm, I'm just going to jump on the kind of like combined gloss at this point. Gloss. Remember this lesson. When you approach him with your onset, glance with your visage and see if he fences short against you. Perceive if... When he hews directly towards you, he does not stretch his arms long from him with his sword's hue. Then his sword is then is his sword shortened before him. If you lie before him in the guard of the tree or the fool, if he wants to fall crookedly thereon with the sword, so is he his sword but shortened. Or likewise, if he lies against you in the guard of the ox or the plough, so is his sword but shortened. Also know that all winds with the sword before you are short and shorten the sword. And all fencers who thus fight short change through freely against them from hewing and from stabbing and shoot the point long therewith in towards the nearest exposure. Therewith you constrain him so that he must displace, and then he may freely hew and correctly work with the sword and also with the wrestling. Likewise, another, rest, another lesson. When you go towards him with your onset, then you shall squint with the visage if he fights short against you. You shall thus discern if, when he hews, he does not stretch his, the arms before himself long from him with the hue, and then his, is his sword shortened. Yeah, that's a lot of words for early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, this, this section isn't talking about the squint or the strike, but about looking at them weird? Yeah, well, that's tricky, because the, I think there's, there's a difference of interpretation that's pretty stark. Um, here between some, between maybe two camps. Some people would interpret this as a play of the Schiller and say, because it's in the Schielhaus section, clearly the cut that is being described where you shoot the point must be a Schiller. Um, but it doesn't ever actually say that. And a typical cut to long point would also satisfy the text nicely. So it may just be a pun on the word squint and it's included here because, you know, where else would they include it um, for whatever pedagogical reason they had? 
and there's no actual squinting cut involved. I fall in the second camp, but I've gotten this argument many times with people who do, do view this as a play of the shiller. So I tend to think that this is something which you can use the shiller as a cut for. Like, you can do actions against somebody fencing short with the shield and they work really well, but it's not intrinsic to this play. I'd kind of split the the shield stuff into three pieces, where one part is actions which are definitely from the shield cut, the shield how. Actions which are about perceiving or observing, uh, i.e. like which is this section. And the last one is actions that are uh, feature vision feints. And all of those kind of play into the same language around faces and squinting and whatever you're doing with your eyes and face, but in different ways. So, so it's got kind of like a theoretical bit where it's describing certain actions as being shortened. And but does it have a play which is like a a body faint or a face faint, or is it just chill and look at how they fence? The only real play here is that if they do anything short, then you can stick your change through and shoot your point out, and then you you make them parry and do whatever you want to do from there. Um, it's pretty much the way it's phrased. Um, well, Glasgow Ringick has a play here. It says, uh, move through under his sword with the hue at the point, wind onto your right side, your cross guard over your head, and stab him to the face. So, against a, someone who's shortening a cut. So, Glasgow's doing kind of like a circle six here, it seems like. Well, this is basically just a Kurtzhow. It's almost exactly the same language as Ringax Kurtzhow. Pretty much, yeah. Also, BTW, apparently that paragraph got left out of the combined gloss that Mike just read, so that was my yeah, that, 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 that's why it's news to me. Uh, <laughs> if you look at the other columns in the te in the thing, you'll see there's an extra paragraph there. Uh, because Lev also has this, and Lev is weird because <laughs> he, right, I mean, I could just stop there, but in this case, Lev is weird because he combines the play that's in Ringek and the description that's in Danzig, but he lists them separately, so he actually repeats himself, sort of, um, and he does this a few times in the Shieldhouse section where he repeats himself inexplicably. But here he defines the striking short twice. Um, once to tell you that you can change through against it, um, against people who stand short or strike short. And then a second time to give Ringex version, uh, more or less. So it's, and I don't know why he does it that way, but this time instead of Danzig, it's, it's Lev who's sort of combining both other glosses into one. There's there's a couple other places where Lev repeats something that's almost the same. One is actually last week in uh, against yeah. Squinter against the Plow, which we didn't mention. I, I meant did. to mention that and forgot. Yeah, me too. And he gives yeah. slightly different text in both of them, but it's clearly the same play. I don't think he adds any detail to it. He just rephrases it. Yeah, you can maybe think of the um, the twofold failure like that also. Except that there's like minor differences in the other one, but yeah, Lev has been known to do like weird stuff like that. And we could view that as evidence that the Lev gloss, and I mean, and honestly, all the glosses are built up from documents and were not written straight through by a single author out of nothing. Yeah, um, I think this is some of the more interesting evidence of that when we have clearly repetitions that don't really make pedagogic sense. 
um, but suggest a scribe that had multiple texts and was combining them. Hmm. But you also see this in Dunzig several times. I'm not sure if you see it in Ringek, but I bet you do. There's some weird stuff in Ringek around the counters to the Krumpal, which might fit into this. But I can't remember offhand how much of it is a matter of variation between glosses and how much is mm. weirdly confused in a single a single copy of the gloss. The follow-ups to the uh, Tsverhal after a parry are kind of like that, because you have that weird slice behind the hands. Oh, yeah. In, in Rayak. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> squinting. Oh, okay, so, so does anybody here actually think that this is... You know, a play where we're definitely supposed to use the the shield how. I have a a more heretical interpretation, which is this is the play that is the counter to the shield how. That's very Meyer, isn't it? Yeah. So Meyer Meyer tells you, do the shield how counter the shield how by changing through counter the changing through by doing what the gloss says. So he he thinks that the change through is a legitimate counter, which can which the the shield how can then counter again. But that if they're not on the ball, then you're changing through a work and you can hit them. Um, and I think that's also what's being expressed here, only it's being generalized to any time that, that because the shielhow essentially is a wine dish strike to a hanger. So a person perceiving that might think that it's short, even though we can talk about how ox is actually longer than you think it is and can shoot out really far. And the shielhow likewise can. But, but if you're seeing someone doing a shielhow type motion, you might believe that they're fencing short. And any other kind of movement to a hanger or taking the point offline and so on or pulling their arms in is also changing short, and they can all be countered the same way. So I think this is included in the shield how maybe because the shield how um, and the crew power are the two cuts that we have where you're definitely shortening your arms. Um, and the shield how is the one where you can make the nice pun about glancing with your face. So I think that's why it's here. That's definitely plausible. I find it's an interesting, interesting to think about in the light of the bit in Ringex explanation of how to do the shield, where it talks about like out, sort of upwardly outstretched arms, or implies that kind of upward thing. Because pushing up or forward looks more like some of the illustrations Meyer has for the shield, and the illustration in Glasgow has that kind of arms up over the head sort of vibe to it, and also will shorten the reach of your point quite significantly. And then in Ringek, it says that like if they if you do the shield and they try to change through against it, then you shoot long, which again implies this idea that what you're doing is probably shortened already, um, or not completely fully extended straight away. And certainly, if you're trying to put your point in front of them as opposed to cut them, you may want to shorten to make that distance work. I think that the author of these glosses didn't feel that they needed an excuse to put anything anywhere. And I say that because <laughs> uh, mostly because of the inverter being in the, the That's right. The inverter is a play of the failure. Everyone knows that. <laughs> well, the failure too. Like that doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be there either. And um, you know, That's obviously fair. we have like the four openings in like the, the Zorn How. So I think that it's not necessarily specifically for or against like the squinter i think that the surely like if you do a squinter with shortened arms then that follow like that follows the advice given here so if they 
if they're doing that, then that means that they're cutting at you with shortened arms, so you can change through against it. But there are other cuts that you can also do with shortened arms. Like you can just do like a regular Oberhau with like T-Rex arms. And right. I think this is, I would say this is one of the short list of plays that I might even move to the general lesson if I were going to reorganize everything. Yeah. Well, it does well, say, I think all of the uh, versions at the beginning say this is a lesson. And mm -hmm. I think there's something too that, like, if they say this is a lesson or, like, you know, this is a player, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I think I agree. I went and did an analysis at some point looking for all the instances of this is a lesson. And they all seem to be very general things and not specific plays that are part of the teaching they fall into. And there aren't that many. So we could construct the you know, the general lesson part two out of all the this is a lesson section. <laughs> I'm going to do that. A gloss <laughs> only with things that start with this is the lesson. Or this right. is a lesson. It would be very short, but it would probably be pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, so my, my, my view on this that isn't heretical or less heretical is that this is really giving us the context in which the general lesson exists. Uh, th that tells you the, the actions. This is giving you some tactical advice on when to use those techniques of cutting in front of his face, threatening him. We even have an instance here of constraining him so that he must displace um, and doing all that stuff. So this is, you know, this is the why and the when you should be doing this cut to long point and changing through with it and so on. Yeah. I think that this doesn't also necessarily have to like come from a hue, but you know, if you're in a point forward guard. So I think the way that I see it is like if I'm in like long point and my opponent is in plow, then I can just stab them. I feel like is what this is saying. That seems true. You can stick your point out at them and make them start engaging your blade, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and it does say from cues and from steps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, having a quick look, this is a totally different type of fencing short to in the general lessons when it's saying that you need to step with your cuts, otherwise you'll be short. Yeah. Because that's strictly cuts rather than these guard, what we call guard positions and so on. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean... Sorry, go ahead, Joey. Oh, no, I was just thinking. <laughs> I, I, I think I agree with Mike. But um, I'm interested to see what you, uh, what you say. <laughs> so I would agree with Mike, then. I'll just jump in. Um, uh, the, like... The stuff which is talked about in the um, stepping with your stepping with your cut and supporting your cut with your foot and so on stuff is talking about the path of the cut and the like the cut being able to fully extend and flow. Where like a lot of these actions aren't being executed badly. Um, well, the implication earlier is that the the action is being executed wrong. Um, instead, it's that these are things which are inherently shorter um, and inherently reduce the threat of your point and allow somebody more space to act in front of you because your weapon is shorter and not pressing directly towards them and demanding they engage it. I think I think the shortening here like pertains to like the distance between your body and the tip of your sword rather than the distance that you're covering in your entire attack. Yeah. Which I think is 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 
something that the general lesson of stepping with your cut is covering. Okay, so here's a question then. Would this strategy work against someone who shortens as in the general lesson, who you know doesn't step with their cut? Would you do this against them? Yeah, I think it stab them. Well, yeah, I mean, you stab everybody, but you, <laughs> I think that if they extend their arms long, then you have to like take their blade or something before you can stab them, which I think is the entire point of this. Is do you have to take their blade? Do you have to do an action on their blade in order to get to them, or can you just go straight to them? So then we have two uses of the word short that are not actually talking about the same thing. That's nice and clear. <laughs> well, yeah, what do you want? Technical language from a, a document that's 500 years old. <laughs> well, it's it's the difference between being like short with the um, uh, arms versus short with the feet. Or short with like the whole body would be the, the kind of distinction I would draw. Where the first one is talking about arranging your entire body for extension and power, and this one is talking about the structure and position of your arms. See, I can't help having short arms and legs. It's just the way I'm built. <laughs> I know you're playing. Get, get, get a better ape index, guys. <laughs> I uh, I know someone with a rack. I'll, uh, I'll get to that, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> what, what I find a little bit interesting here is that when... I was learning longsword. Thrusts were all about thrusting in opposition. Uh, I think from rapier, so all about seeking that bind and trying to to win the center line that isn't even in these sources in that bind and stuff. Whereas this section's just like, so if they're an ox, then they're short. Just stab them somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then again, why, why today wouldn't we teach, like, if they're in plow, just stab them somewhere else. They have to react. Because it feels like you'd be ignoring uh, a massive threat by doing that. But, but it really does seem like this source is not worried about doubles in the slightest. <laughs> if that's, uh, that's their answer to someone well, being in ox or plow. What I'm thinking here is... If you're so, if you're in the shoes of the person who is doing the ox or the plow, why are you in that retracted position? And like the main answer that I can think of is, you are trying to avoid a blade engagement, or you want to like, if you do want a blade engagement, you only want it at the very end, like when you can control it. So, really, by stabbing in, you're you know, you're following the rules of, of that guard because you can't engage their blade. The only thing you can really do is stab in and then, like, have them react to it. Yeah, that, that works. I guess... I have two thoughts on this. The first one is, it doesn't actually say that you're going to stab without binding. And I say that because the illustrations that we have depicting changing through typically show binding on the opposite side where you go underneath and then you lock up their sword. So that could be part of this game. Yes, where you're not binding until you change through. <laughs> which which might keep you safer. What'd you say, T? I said it's called Circle Six. Oh, uh, I've no, done too much foil lately. It's leaking. <laughs> circle Six is epe. It's fine. I thought you did foil, T. I do. Anyways, the other, the other <laughs> thing that occurred to me is um, the court set. Does the, is is the Kurtzow an example of this of this strategy? 
because it has a whole lot of ideas in common. Ah, that would, depends on the gloss the of the Kurtau, I would say. Oh, against Ox. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, change through, extend long, stab on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of close parallels to the Kurtzhau in this material. The on the topic of just thrusting at somebody in a shortened guard, I think that like if you look at Absetson versus Ansetson, which we'll probably talk about later in a few weeks, whenever, there's a difference in kind of a degree of a difference in priority where you either if they're coming towards you, you engage the blade first and then go to the go to the opening off the blade. And if you're going towards them, you go to the opening first and then cover the blade or engage the blade if you feel the need to. And that's kind of a, a shift in priority. And then from a practical effect, if somebody's hanging around in Flug and hasn't committed to an action already, trying to actually engage their blade is really challenging. Same if they're hanging around in Ox. If they're not committed to thrusting or to putting the point somewhere particular, then the point can walk away from wherever it currently is to go somewhere else if you try and chase the blade to get a bind on it. Whereas if you extend towards them, you force them to come and engage your blade in a predictable way. And then you can work from that. So the extension might be a little bit short of actually hitting, depending on what you're trying to do and how risky you think they are as a fencer. You can often get the same effect with a stab that'll fall two inches short. But it yeah, that, that's fair. It's... encourages them to commit their blade to something that would allow you to do a further action on the blade if you want to, or to go directly to the target if that's appropriate and reasonable and feasible. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. Um... But like, just from a fun practical ex fencing exercise perspective, try having a mate stand in like Flug with their arms pretty short and try to actually completely control their blade with your blade in a way that doesn't let them just stab you somewhere else. I think it depends a little bit on how the person holds their flug too. Some people hold it like way out in front. Yeah, I if it's already really extended, then that's more of that's the next point. week's discussion, I guess. But as but long as it's quite short. Look at the picture in Danzig. Look how far back it's supposed to be. You're supposed yeah. to dislocate your shoulder. <laughs> I know, right? And if you try to if you try to engage something like that, it's really it can be really hard to trap their point um, in a way that doesn't let them disengage and stab you in the thigh or whatever they can reach to. Yeah, which I think is the point of standing in flug is you don't want that engagement. You want to engage on your terms when you're ready. But how do you bounce around with the sword that pulled back? <laughs> that doesn't affect your bouncing at all. You just bounce. <laughs> Quick, quick question, Mike. In your notes for this episode, you've got something on Abba versus Alba. What's that about? Yeah, so there's an interesting um, thing in Lev. So, that, so one of the little pieces of this is it says that if he lies before you in the guard of tree of the poplar tree or the fool, depending on your school of thought, uh, if you if you're in this guard and he falls crooked on your sword then he's shortened. Um, but in Lev, there's some confusion about what the word there is. Um, and it might just, it, it might be Abba instead of Alba, which would be if you, uh, if you also line, if you line before him, but in a guard or yet in a guard, Abba is just one of those connecting words um, that doesn't necessarily refer to the name of the guard. So it could be that the fool is a, misreading the word Alba 
um, and it was initially Abba, in which case, if he if you lie before him in any guard and he tries to fall on it crookedly, then you can use this technique against him, as opposed to just fool, which is pretty hard to fall on with the Krimpao in the first place. But there's, um, no crooked, there's no crooked in love. Crooked is only in Danzig. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I have that written down here. I ignored it. Um, so, but if he, if he falls on, so th this could mean if he falls on your sword in any guard, which I guess we would assume doesn't include Fomtag because it's really hard to fall on that. But <laughs> I've definitely you fenced Steve and he's tried to fall on my sword in Vomtag. What? I've definitely fenced Steve and he's tried to fall on my sword while I was in Tag. <laughs> but, but, right, but anytime you're sticking your sword out and your opponent tries to push it down, perhaps it's saying you can treat them as being as shortening their sword. Um, so it's not just the very specific play of countering the poplar tree or using the Krumpau against the poplar tree, but a broader idea here. And I think that's what it's meant, what is meant. And the, someone misread it and added an L into Auburn and ended up with Oliver. But there's no way of proving that. There are some versions of the gloss though that say Abba. For, for, oh. So for Lev, yeah, for Lev, uh, the only version that doesn't say Aber that says Alber instead, uh, cr uh, the correct version is um, the uh, Spire version or Salzburg. And I'm pretty sure uh, Nikolaus also says Alber, the fool. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, T. I was going to say in the um, miscellaneous fencings from the sweeps. Uh, there are a couple of actions which are basically this as well. There's one, so you're standing in a side guard, uh, iron gate type position, um, and there are plays described for when they try to fall crookedly with their hands high and when they try to fall on your sword with their hands low. And in particular, the second one is a disengage and shoot the point straight to their chest. So that would be a potential uh, support for the idea that this should be Albert. Is that is essentially the same action. They shorten before you and you just go directly to the opening, either under their sword, if their hands are high and there's an opening under their sword, or by disengaging around it if you need to clear the engagement. Just a, an observation. Oh, to, to the other piece of, of what I was just talking about would be Ringak is the only source that actually talks about falling on your opponent's sword with the Krumpa like this, even though Danzig is the one who brings it up here and not Ringak. But Ringek's second play, we've, we talked about several episodes ago, of the Krumpau, is this exact thing. So that, that could be what's being invoked here, if it is talking about. But in that case, you're not starting in Albert. You might end up there, but it's uh, you're in, you're doing whatever you're doing, possibly striking, and he falls on top of your sword to push it down. So potential parallel, but not definitive one. It is, however, the only place where an action like this appears in the gloss. Well, what we're given here is just a bunch of situations in which a like a disengage or a Dirch of Excellent is available to you as an option, or like where you won't get stabbed in the face immediately if you do it. Right. So since the Kurtzau is a disengage, it should fit in one of these situations. Right, I was meant specifically the falling on top of the guard. Sure. He's talking about the crimp to the blade as a parallel to that, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, there's there's also so in the Sprechfenster it says if he tries to swat your blade away with his sword, 
then you can disengage against that, which is kind of like falling on your sword, right? Yeah, uh, I, would, I would accept that as the same idea. Um, and certainly has the same counter. Yeah. Um, but also it occurs to me that if you're in fool and he falls on you crooked, your opportunities to change through are going to diminish really, really quickly. Since no, he's your sword. That's a really, like, there's two awesome opportunities to change through in that situation. It depends on exactly how widely they're holding, but you can either come up underneath and shoot a kind of rising thrust that hooks up under and gets the forearm or the chest. Or if they're a little bit narrower and a little bit more extended, you do a kind of upside down question mark and shoot around the hilt. <laughs> so, so either like an anti-mutiran underneath or, or just a normal circular disengage. Yeah. Um, the second one works super well. You can ask Miles Cup how it feels. <laughs> Are these actions changing through? Uh, I would say or so. Or just thrusting? Um, the first one is just thrusting. Um, the second one is definitely a change through. There's a circular, like their blade is blocking the direct line. You circle around their blade and continue directly to the target. Hmm, interesting. Uh, but if you execute it just right, it doesn't slow down your action at all. So it's really, really difficult for the attacker to compensate for. Hmm. So I have a question for everybody. Do you think that shortening is inherently bad? I do it all the time. I think it, it leaves you vulnerable to certain counters that you might not be otherwise, but so does everything. Yeah. My I've default got... strike has my elbows bent. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Well, looking at the list of things that it says is fencing short, like we can just write off fencing from plow and ox straight away. They're, they're inherently bad. And then we can write <laughs> off, <laughs> we can write off uh, cutting with your arms crossed. So the fair oh. how, inherently and bad. And all how. bad. Yeah, winding, winding's bad. Nobody we winds in competition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so no, my answer would be, of course not. No. And trying to fence long all the time is a silly proposition. And many bad Zornhow interpretations come from it. For sure. <laughs> Many bad just fencing interpretations come from it. Um, <laughs> well, I, sorry, T, go ahead. I was going to say, what I would hedge slightly and say is that making your first... If you're the person initiating the action, making your first action a deliberately shortened one opens you up to a number of ways for them to take over the action. Whereas making your first action extended is helpful. If you're going to give up the kind of, if you're going to give up the first action, like in Absetson, then using a shortened position can be really useful because it draws in that extended attack from the other person and creates commitment that you can work on. Or if you're responding, then winding against the blade in some general sense, uh, which could be a whole variety of cuts or whatever, um, is obviously great. Uh, but if you're coming forwards and you're doing the first thing, often you want to extend so that you can force them to be in reacting to you first. And I would say you can also take the sort of anti-gloss lesson from this that if you do decide to use short fencing, be aware that long fencing will counter it and be prepared for that. So if you're going to do this short stuff, Expect that a canny opponent will use the, his will extend against you, and you know don't be surprised when that happens and have a plan. Um, yeah. But 
everything can be countered. So it's not like you're uniquely exposing yourself there. You just are setting up a situation where changing through is going to work really well against you. So be aware of that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously, you know, obviously it's not bad because we're told to do pretty much all of those things. I think that short fencing is, this is going to sound obvious, but is necessary when you're in a closer distance. So you can, so like if you, if the distance has collapsed a little bit, now you can use windings to set up a thrust rather than like use long point or whatever. Also, like I was talking about before, if you don't want uh, your opponent to engage your blade right away, then uh, a shortened position is good. But you have to expect them to threaten your point and or threaten you with the point like Michael said, or you have to go first with your attack, like T said. So yeah, not so bad, I think but situational. One particular thing about using shorter fencing in response is that somebody who's already committed to an action can't disengage against your short action if they haven't anticipated it. Like, if you're swinging a cut and I parry it with a short structure, you can't disengage in that moment because you're busy doing the cut. Um, unless the cut was a feint and you're already planning to disengage, in which case, I guess I'm going to die. Um, <laughs> but that, and that's kind of intrinsically different to shortening myself before my opponent has committed to a thing. When they're not committed to a thing already, um, then being short can be particularly dicey if they're good at working disengages to multiple openings and keeping their point threatening me. If they've committed to something, Shortening against that commitment can be really effective. Hmm. Sorry, really All effective, right, one, and it's a lot harder for them to punish it. One last question: How good is everybody at squinting with a fencing mask on? <laughs> well, it's easy to see if they're fencing short or long. It, it depends on how they their face. Yeah. Well, the, the tiny like holes in your mask act as like pinhole lenses, right? <laughs> it's also a lot harder now that everybody is wearing a uh, face covering under their mask. <laughs> Ninja. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Do you do you think that not wearing masks would, from a understanding your fencing opponent, change things? I don't think it would for this section. We'll probably have to come back to this in the next uh, the next episode where it's more deba more debatable. Yeah, but I find something I find with the play I was talking about in the uh, fencing from the sweeps um, of seeing when they're going to try and fall on you and disengaging um, as they try that is that there is often a cue in somebody's body language, like a, a sort of. There's a kind of focus for where somebody is focusing and where they're acting that gets conveyed by a bunch of little shifts in someone's whole body language, like the way their body is lined up and their hips are oriented and stuff. And that's pretty easy to perceive through a, despite fencing gear, um, yeah. especially when somebody changes. So one of the most common ways I'll get a touch on someone with the disengaging from an elbow sort of sweeping position is that they throw a couple of cuts and I parry them with short edge parries. And then there's a very clear shift in focus when they decide, okay, I'm going to smash, like come down on your sword and you're not going to do a short edge parry on me. And that 
decision changes the shape of them in a way that you can recognize and respond to. Oh, nice. Because they're like, the way they're focused and aligned and ready to generate power shifts slightly. And that's kind of because it's a whole body thing, it comes through in gear. Hmm. Yeah, with these, I mean, it's only really difficult if you need to discern, like, face, you know, what's Actual what's facial on. expressions. Right, exactly. With But the, none of these are, like, have anything to do with the face. Like, you can obviously see if someone's in flug. And if not, then, like, <laughs> you're not going to be fencing very well. Cool. Anybody got anything else to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I got one more thing. It's kind of funny that 3227A, at one point, badmouths people who describe winding as fencing with the short and the sword, which means that he's clearly directly calling out all of the RDL glassators um, because of this section. He says only false masters call winding shorten the sword. Hmm. Oh. Maybe, maybe I should dig out the actual quotation. But yeah, I think so you've misstated that a bit. I've just pulled it up. Like he says that people who dismiss wines because they're from the shortened sword and say they say it's rubbish and only like so he's like there are these illegitimate masters, they dismiss and say whatever comes from the wines is weak and they say it's from the shortened sword because they're simple and naively and approach fencing naively <laughs> and fight from long sword with extended arms and extended sword. Um Yeah, see so clearly so he's, just to be those guys. Well, no, because he's saying that those guys are saying winding is shit because it has a shortened sword. He's not saying that people who say winding has a shortened sword <laughs> are wrong about winding. It seems like he's saying that he's making fun of people for calling it the shortened sword, though. For calling it short. Uh, yeah. like, like, no, it's not short, it's good. <laughs> I think he's basically making fun of people who say you always have to have long arms for structure and therefore winding is shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like that would be the that's the thing I've seen people say in modern Hema that fits most closely with this. I, I agree. Yeah. I've certainly heard that. And it is terrible to watch when someone stretches himself out as if he would chase a hare. <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> analogies in the whole gloss. He's yeah, in that one he's disparaging the um ballistic passing step. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have one more teeny tiny tidbit. It'll take two seconds. So go ahead, Steve. Um, the Zettel, the normal uh, verse is shield kutzt edishan for the first one. So like squint if he shortens you or look if he shortens you. But the Cal version says shield uh, kutzt ehrlich, which means like squint short honorably. So I thought that was interesting. That's all. Um, I'm not trying to fit that back in with everything we've just said. Like... <laughs> this isn't this isn't about actually doing a shield how this is about blah 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 blah. And then you're just like shield short honorably. Bam, my brain instantly <laughs> goes to doing a shield how tight to the body. A short one. It's honorable to do it short. Yeah. Well I've got nothing to add to that. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks, Anytime. Steve, you ruined it. <laughs> All right. Everything we've said is now invalid. Perfect right. time in the episode to do that. <laughs> All right. And on that beautiful I note, it's Cal time to end. It. I said it. All right.
Thank you very much for listening, everybody. This has been episode 20 of Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Mike Swarge, and joining us today have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.